Good morning, everyone. Uh, we, we are here this morning to worship Jesus, um, to acknowledge, this is what we're all about, to acknowledge that he has worth, and so we give him worth-ship. That's actually where the word worship comes from, and that is what we are doing this morning. We believe that he loves us, and he loved us so much that he gave us his word that's printed in our Bibles to help us become shaped into people who look like him. So as part of our giving worship to him, we're going to spend some time this morning learning from him, acknowledging that he is our God and he actually knows best. So the section of the Bible that we've been going through for the last four weeks is called the book of James. And we're going to pick up in James where we left off last week. So please, I would invite you to open up the Bibles that you have with you uh, to James chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, and I'd encourage you to, uh, the ushers have Bibles at the back, so if you can raise your hand, they'll make sure that you get one. Now, as you're turning there, as we sometimes do here, uh, I'd invite you to stand with me just as a a physical acknowledgement that this is God's word and it is of utmost importance. And we submit to what this says because this is our God who has loved us. So I'm reading from James chapter 3 and we're beginning at verse 1 this morning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Father, um, we pray that you teach us what this means. We love you and we thank you for your word. We want to trust that you know best what to do. And so I pray that we would humbly listen to the things that you are teaching us here in your word. God, may we love you more as we learn from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Why don't you take a seat? 
words. The things that we say, if you don't know this already, are massively important. If I ask you if you have ever had something said to you that has wounded you, I believe that probably for nearly every person in this room, right now, there's even a phrase that comes to mind immediately. Maybe even there's a wave of emotion that hits you, a punch to the gut as you remember that thing that was said. You trusted that person. You loved that parent, that sibling, that speaker, that pastor who hurt you by what they said. These words might have been pointed, specific, they might have been targeted, or maybe this was just an offhand comment that somebody made, and two minutes after they said it, they wouldn't have even remembered that they said that. And yet, even if that was 10 or 20 years ago, those words still bounce around in the cavern of the quiet moments of your mind. Words can hurt, and they can hurt deeply. They convince us of things, they can manipulate us towards certain things. They can cause us to develop calluses against other people, against ideas, against things. They can even callous us against our very emotions. Words matter. Language matters, doesn't it? Words can be hurtful and painful, and yet, think about when you've tried to use your words for good. How has that worked for you? Some of you have suffered grief. Um, some of you are suffering grief in the death of loved ones, parents, children, maybe siblings or a dear friend. And there are people who have really tried to show you love. And they've tried to use their words for good. And sometimes it can be really awkward because sometimes the words that people say actually still sometimes cause hurt, even though they meant them for good. I think it's really awkward when that happens because you know that somebody's loving you and they're trying to use their words to encourage you and sometimes it just doesn't land right. And that's uncomfortable. Uh, even in our day-to-day -day lives, how many of you constantly put your foot in your mouth? My hand is up. <laughs> um, you might mention a surprise party to the very person it's for. Uh, you mispronounce a word, and all of a sudden, your impassioned speech turns into everybody's just laughing about it. Uh, if you want more convincing, open up any of your social media accounts, and for maybe 28 seconds, uh, this day before the election, it's full of people who tried to say the right thing and just messed it up. I talk a lot, and so this has happened to me a lot. Uh, one probably really embarrassing example was that after I finished my degree, I was like, I have a semester off. And so I actually went and lived in this small town in eastern Quebec for three months because I wanted to try and learn French better. And so I lived with a friend of mine, and I had been there for nearly two months. I can't emphasize this enough. I had been there for nearly two months. And so, at the time, I thought, I'm going to go on a small little road trip on my own. And while I was there, I stayed at an Airbnb. And I asked the host of the Airbnb. We had a great meal at dinner time. And I said, hey, I'd love some honest feedback on how my French is going. And he said, well, 
I wasn't going to say anything, but since you asked, and so I braced myself for the impact, so every time you say merci beaucoup, you're slightly mispronouncing it. It turns out that for perhaps two months, I had sometimes, instead of saying thank you very much, said thank you, nice behind. I won't say what I thought about my friend who had not corrected me on this this whole time. <laughs> Nonetheless, we are unreliable people when we're put in charge of what we say, aren't we? And that's what James is addressing here. And it's in this context that James makes his first point. He addresses the people who professionally talk, who professionally say things, to terrifyingly people like me right now. Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. So friends, if we're unreliable guides of our own use of language and the things that we say, it makes sense that James's first port of call is to talk to the people who talk a lot. There's just a lot more material to examine. And if God is going to hold us accountable for the words that we say, it makes sense that when we say more, there's more to do with, uh, particularly in a case like this, where I'm having not a conversation or a moment of talking with just one of you, but with each one of you. So there are not just one conversation, but very many going on. Uh, I will be honest, this passage has been a bit paralyzing for me to teach on this week. Um, this message of scripture, it's always true. It's always the case that those who teach will be held to a greater judgment. But goodness, seeing this written at the top of my notes all week definitely made me think. It has a way of making you think seriously about what you ought to say and what you ought not to say, because words matter. Now, remember, we are reading somebody else's mail here, and so we want to remember that. The James is talking to Christians who are living all around and outside of Palestine 2,000 years ago. Sometimes the difference in our culture and a culture 2,000 years ago is vast. I don't think that it's that vast when it comes to this. Uh, a huge value in this Romanized society, which was kind of carried forward from the previous Greek society and just went everywhere because of everything, uh, was this idea that superior ways of teaching, that if you could turn a phrase really well and be a really great speaker, that's a really elevated status in society. And so uh, it makes sense. A lot of people wanted to be in an upfront role saying things because that was an elevated role in society. Uh, and it makes sense that when James says not many of you should be teachers, that there were probably people who wanted to be teachers. And he's correcting this. And I say that, though, and many of you might say the last thing I'd ever want to do, Kevin, is trade places with you right now. And some of you have actually said that you're quite nervous on my behalf, just the fact that I'm, I'm standing up here. Um, and, but some of you do. Some of you would like to be in this role and do love to teach, and that, that's fantastic. But I don't think it has just to do with um, our teaching. I want to challenge us a little bit further on this. The purpose is, what am I saying, and how many conversations are we talking about here? 
There's a massive value in our world about being an influencer. Some of you may or may not know this, but this is actually starting to become a job description uh, where there are teenagers who are influencers who just because they have a following of people get paid to promote products and whatnot. Uh, if you take a look at social media for a minute, um, I want you to think about how other people behave. Think of Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, perhaps Snapchat, the subreddits, email forwards, parenting blogs, YouTube. Have you ever read the comment threads on a YouTube video? Have you seen angry emails with the subject line forward, 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 regarding forward, forward, and then this big thing that you need to pass along? Have you watched a video be reposted again and again in someone's Instagram story? Like and comment. It's terrifying, isn't it? You see all these comments, like, wow, this is a mess. And what's sometimes our first reaction? Well, I'm going to set them straight. <laughs> or is that just me? Maybe, maybe it's just me. Uh, I don't necessarily think that Christians always have the best track record on these sorts of things either. And maybe you have the self-discipline to not get involved in those comment threads, but you, you share it, you're all about sharing those kind of weird photo quote blocks that you're going to repost those, um, or forwarding kind of these articles that are written from really who knows what news agency, but I want, my, I want to make sure that people are convinced of this opinion. And I'm not making any actual moral comments on any of these things, but I want to ask, why do we do these things? I think it's the response to the motto of our society, which is, go change the world. The university president of my school, when we did that whole shake hands thing, that's what he actually said to half of us. We left, go change the world. Uh, and again, I don't think that's actually a bad motto. I don't think it's a bad thing to share posts, to retweets, to get involved in comment discussions. I don't think it's a bad thing to want to affect change in the world. It's not a bad thing to want to be influential. But listen to James's warning. Not many of you should become teachers. How come? Well, we're going to read in a minute that with language comes tremendously great power. And with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Good being well catechized in Spider-Man. Words matter. Uh, and if you're looking for your words to have a big audience, your words matter more. And God cares about the words that you use and the effects that they have. So while everything in our culture tells us how much we should desire to have influence, to change the world, to share our thoughts and opinions, be warned. Each of us is accountable for the things that we say, written or spoken. Now, you might be sitting here, and you are a quiet, reserved kind of person, uh, and you're exceptionally careful with your words. I have an uncle who's like this, and let me tell you, whenever he speaks, the room quiets down because he always has something well thought to say. If you're like him, uh, maybe you've actually just heard everything that I've said and relate to none of it, and you're like, finally, somebody is frustrated with this like I am. Um, first of all, I, I commend you if you're that type of person. That is uh, a gift of God in shaping you toward that. 
But my guess is that even if that's the type of person you are, you still struggle uh, when it comes to saying the right things. You probably have fewer foot-in-mouth situations because you're saying less and you're being more careful about what you say. But the reality that James points out, the reason that he is uh, addressing teachers first is that everyone has issues. Everyone has issues with this. All of us actually struggle to keep our language under control. Look here. James says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So it makes sense that our tongue, that our language, the things that we say get us into trouble. James here actually says that by implication, it's the hardest thing to control. When we finally get a hold of our tongue, when we finally know how to control our language, it means that we must be perfect. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor's office, and what's one of the first things that they might do when you get checked into an office? They take your temperature and your blood pressure and your heartbeat, and these are all vital signs. These are all things that communicate hopefully the whole picture of whether or not you're healthy. Those are the things that typically go really wrong when you're not healthy, and the things that are going well when perhaps you are well. In a similar way, that's kind of what James is saying about our language. Our language is kind of the vital sign indicator of our whole spiritual health. Because when we're spiritually unhealthy, our language is unhealthy. And when we're spiritually healthy, our language is healthy. So we have two things, one on each hand, that all of us stumble in many ways. We all struggle to keep our language under control, but we should really want to not stumble in that because that would mean that we'd be really spiritually healthy. We'd start to look like Jesus. Now, the warning that James gives us, like, why is this? It's not just because he uh, thinks that we're all inherently bad, that we should just stop talking altogether. It's because there's such potential in the words that we say. Our, our language isn't bad. It's not neutral. It actually has such potential for good. And God often corrects the things in our lives that have great potential that we don't actually use. James gives us a couple pictures of the potential of our words. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, I'm not a horse person, and by that I mean I didn't like, grow up around horses or really ride them except maybe once at camp. Uh, some of you I know really like horses and you know how to care for a horse, uh, but even if you don't, James's point is pretty clear. You have this horse, it's a, a big animal, and you put this tiny little bit in its mouth, and then just like that, with a sensitive little tug on one side, tug on the other, this massive, heavy creature just moves the way you want it to. It's stable. It's under control. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, we are West Coast, uh, PNW people here, and I'm sure that many of you have the experiences of kayaking or canoeing up at Bunsen or Sassamat. Maybe you've kind of gone up the Indian arm. Have you noticed how much a, 
of an effect a simple twist of a paddle can make. Uh, you may not have experienced sailing a giant ship with big sails, um, but it's remarkable that no matter how strong that wind is, the most important thing is that little rudder that guides which direction it goes. Maybe you have actually sat in an airplane in this large 747 right by the wing. Um, some of you have purposefully never sat by the wing because you don't want to see what's going on. But if you look outside of that window, you'll notice these massive wings on this plane. And on the back of them are these tiny little flaps on both sides. And if you watch, just a slight decrease on one side, slight increase on the other, and all of a sudden, this 400-ton metal ship, 30,000 feet in the air, turns, changes course from a couple inches on either side. It's potential way out of proportion for the size. This is what James' picture of our words are. That these tiny words can have such potential. And for these things, these are good things. To guide a ship, to guide a horse, to take what could be chaotic and make it work for good. So also, the tongue is a small member, and yet it does great things. So I want you to think for a moment of words spoken to you, of good words. How much good has been done in your life because of them? It was about a year and a half ago that one of my mentors sat me down and told me that, so far as he knew, he believed that I was supposed to be in full-time pastoral ministry. That changed the course of my life. It was a confirmation that God had been working out in the midst of a struggle, and he said, this is where you're supposed to be. Uh, not long after Derwin and I first chatted about this role, a friend of mine, without knowing anything about what was going on, uh, sat me down and asked if I'd considered moving into youth ministry, and he told me that he thought I needed to. One of my dear friends uh, nearly brought me to tears just the other day, by the simple words that God loves you so much, Kevin. The words inspired by God himself from Psalm 37 have brought me back from the edge when I felt like throwing in the towel. Though he stumbles, he will never fall, for the Lord holds him by the hand. It's a prayer of a precious song that I sing often. I rest in you, God. Abide with me. Those words echo in my heart and sit framed in my office because words have incredible ability for good, far out of proportion to their size. You'll notice that most of these examples are phrases less than 10 words long that have had life-changing impacts on my own life. And I'm sure that if we, were to, we could fill the rest of the service with examples in your own lives, and I hope these are coming to mind as well. So again, the answer to watching what we say is not to stop saying things. What if some of these things had not been said to me? Some of the formative things in your life had not been said to you? I'd be a mess. Uh, but the answer is to say the right things. There is something that we're probably especially poor at in our comfortable, polite, West Coast Canadian society, and it's saying the right things. We have very little problem saying things, I'll say. Um, but you'll, you may notice, even after the service sometimes in our conversations or in your small groups, 
uh, sometimes we tend to choose cheap words over deep words. Um, we can talk forever about the weather and about sports and about school and work and about our cars and recipes and sales and fashion, about real estate costs or politics or new technology, perhaps everything except for something that's personal, something that might be invasive. But interestingly, as Christians, we believe that all of our hope is wrapped up in exactly zero of those things. Our hope is wrapped in the person of Jesus Christ. Our lives are hid with him in God. So it's peculiar how so little of our conversations naturally revolve around what God's doing in our lives. I think G.K. Chesterton quite hit the nail on the head. He said, if there is one thing more than another which anyone will admit who has the smallest knowledge of the world, it's this. The people are always speaking gravely and earnestly and with the utmost possible care about the things that are not important, but always talking frivolously about the things that are. I want to ask you, how many of your dear friends know that you love them? Is that something you might need to tell them? I mean, maybe, you, well, they should know that. Have you told them? Is that potential for good worth the risk of feeling a little awkward? Maybe you need to start asking some questions about how somebody's really doing uh, and not be satisfied when they just, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, sometimes that risk of stepping into the uncomfortable may be that inch on one side or the other that causes great potential for good out of proportion with those, the size of those words. As a church, I think it's really important that we are a place full of rich and deep words. It doesn't mean we need to be super intense all the time, but it means we ought to be intentional. We also have the opportunity to be constantly sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us. Not just people who don't know Jesus, but those side beside with us. I, some of the most important conversations that I've ever had have been times when people have reminded me of the good news of what Jesus has done, what he's doing, what he's going to do, uh, based on what his word says. <clears throat> Sometimes it, we need to encourage one another. And these things, they ought to be true things, don't they? Uh, now, Simon, at the end of the summer, came up and taught us a lot about encouragement, and I don't want to belabor what encouragement looks like, um, but it's not enough just to make up nice things to say to people, because um, those are kind of cheap words, too. I, quite a, a long time ago, in a place very separate from here, uh, I was in an event where the idea was to put a whole bunch of just encouraging words on a wall, and everybody go up and grab a note that had an encouragement. And I'll tell you, I really appreciated the gesture, but simply having a note that said, I had a nice smile, didn't quite feel like it meant very much because it wasn't, uh, it may not have even been true. Somebody just gave me, I just grabbed a note from a wall that was random. <laughs> um, the things that we say ought to be reflective of what's true. That's part of the reality of what a deep word ought to be. Similarly, and I think more importantly, what we say about God and what we say about his word ought to be true. And ought to reflect his character and who he says that he is. 
Uh, Bob Coughlin, in his excellent book on worship, says that every Christian is already a theologian. The question is, is, am I a good theologian or am I a bad one? I know it's a messy word, theologian, but what we believe about who God is, just because you may not be studying theology doesn't mean you don't have a theology. We need to be truthful about what we say about God. Because how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire? The tongue has a lot of potential in both directions. I want to remind you of the story of the people of Israel back in the book of Exodus for a moment. Uh, you may remember this story. You may not. Uh, either way, I'll recap it for you. Uh, God had rescued this people of Israel from the land of Egypt, and he took them out. He rescued them from slavery. It's a precious picture, and he brings them uh, on a journey through the wilderness to shape them as people who look more and more like him. And he gives them, as part of this, the gift of the Ten Commandments, these principles uh, by which we are designed to live by. And he gives these to them. Uh, the, the second one you may remember is you shall not make any idols. You shouldn't carve for yourself images of anything and worship them. And in shock, you may have read this story and said, but the very next thing they do while Moses is up talking to God is build an idol. They take all their earrings and necklaces and melt them all down uh, and we could talk forever about this story, but they, they make this golden calf, and they start to worship it. Now, something interesting was pointed out to me not very long ago. The sin and the wrongdoing of the people was not actually that they were worshiping a different God. They were worshiping the right God in the wrong way, without any regard to what he had said. If you look at this, the text, it says that Aaron looked at this calf and said, hey, look, this is the God that brought us out of Israel. You know, the one who's been walking in front of us, this is him. Uh, he gave us his name. He said his name is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. Let's worship, let's have a festival for Yahweh to celebrate the fact, the good things that he has done. They were by name ascribing to God something that was untrue about who he was. And so they, all, they broke what God said, you shouldn't worship images because images are a pale reflection of who God is. Um, if they're not, uh, if they're something that's just a mere creation. And what's more, he act, they actually break the next commandment in line, which is that you should not use God's name in vain. You should not misuse his name. Uh, I'll talk about what that looks like in a second, but you need to remember that in these days, more than our days, our name has less to do with our identity than it did then. And what they were saying is they were changing God's identity, changing what was true about him and worshiping the wrong things about the right God. And it's important that we don't make the same mistake. We don't want to misrepresent God's identity. We don't want to worship him in ways that are not consistent with who he is. And I do want to pause here for a minute um, and just think about uh, the negative potential that our words can have. Uh, in the summer of 2003, uh, I was camping with my family uh, down in West Kelowna. It was West Bank back then. Uh, and we were, we were driving through, and it was August 16th, which is actually my birthday. Um, and we were driving through, and... 
uh, as we were getting near the campsite, we, we saw there's a little grass fire there, and there's some smoke going on, and uh, we couldn't see totally where it was, but there's some planes dumping water on it. Uh, I heard from some people it was a cigarette butt, some it was a lightning strike. Either way, it was a small fire, and we sat because we were young kids, and we thought, oh, cool, these planes dumping water on stuff, and my parents were probably glad to be out of the vehicle with all of us. Uh, and we watched, and all of a sudden, the helicopters and planes took off because there was a bigger fire, a more important fire further away. And this small fire seemed like they could come back to it and contain it. So we went on to our campsite um, across the lake. So West Kelowna is on one side of the lake, and then Kelowna is kind of on the other side. And that evening, we sat from our campsite with some tears and pain in our eyes as we watched the entire hillside, and you may remember this well, have fire walk right across it. Um, Upwards of 30,000 people were evacuated and 290 homes lost. What great effect a small fire can have. And this is the picture that James gives us of how significant our words can be for the wrong use. Our words are like that initial spark where it doesn't seem like that big of a deal when it's small. So I want to think about some of the ways that we may use our language, that we may represent God, misrepresent God in our language. I mean, just a basic one, the first normal reading that we've often read in that third commandment is not misusing God's name. And yet, we live in a culture where uh, the, the phrase, oh my God, is used as a reaction, as a shock. Like, oh, I'm shocked by this, that's what I ought to say. Where we use... Jesus' name is a curse word replacement when we stub our toe. And uh, if someone was to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't talk that way, the reaction most of the time would probably be, well, I, I don't mean anything by it. And D.A. Carson says that's precisely the point. <laughs> that God's name ought to mean something. It ought to have a weightiness to us. It ought to hold significance for us. Consider the language that you use. Should we regularly be using swear words in our language? Are there words that are part of your vocabulary that you actually censor when there's children around? Why? Are we being consistent with who we are? Now, I have to admit, when I say these things, when I've heard these things, I get a bit of a pang in my chest. Uh, as an embarrassing thing where I don't want to be that Christian who has polished themselves up so much that they've lost any relatability. Um, and so I kind of really want to be able to hold on to some cultural connection. Maybe you feel that as well. You want to fit in. Because um, if I'm relatable, if people think, ah, he's just like me, then people want to be a Christian, right? It seems like it might be a good strategy but if it's out of sync with how God has asked us to live, is that truly a good strategy? Hugo says that there are ways of falling into error while pursuing the truth. So Paul actually carries this further when he instructs us about our language. In Ephesians 5.4, uh, he says that obscene and foolish talking or crude jokes aren't actually suitable for a follower of Jesus. I'll admit, I feel heavy under this. This is a lot to take in. Uh, and 
I realize as we're talking about this that I am a very far distance away from the example that God's calling me to do. It's really tough. Does it make sense? Does it resonate with you when James says all the animals we can tame and yet our language we can't tame at all? It seems to be the most difficult creature of all the land to actually get under control. You see this now. As the weight of this feels heavier and heavier and God brings more things to our mind, it's like, oh, will I ever get there? With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. This ought not to be so. We shouldn't be people who love God but treat people poorly with our words. But more, it actually shouldn't be possible. In the ideal world, it says that you can't have salt water from a fresh spring. Uh, you can't get figs off of an olive tree. If we are rooted in Jesus, those should not be compatible. It shouldn't be that we could put, do one thing and the other. We couldn't be inconsistent. You shouldn't be able to hear harmful language from a Christian. Now, if we were to finish right now, this would be a really heavy burden of a message, wouldn't it? But I want you to know that James gives us this message because of God's great love for us. This God is the same one who knew we needed so much help that he came and died for us in order to make us more like him. Why does language matter so much? Jesus says that out of our mouths speaks the overflow of our hearts. And where our language is the vital statistic about our spiritual health, God loves us enough to want us to be spiritually healthy. The goal that we've seen through James is James wants us to have integrity with the people that we are, that we should be consistent Christians. Do you realize how great an act of love it is that God would want us to look like him? And then he's given us a barometer to figure out where we stand and how we are becoming more like him? The greatest gift that God can give us is helping us become more like him. And how do we know what our hearts are like? Well, a good idea is to look at the things that we say. I really hope that we can leave this place encouraged rather than discouraged. Encouraged that our God wants and empowers us to become more like him. What a gift of love. Do you believe this? Now, what I could do, what I could have done, is run down a list of all the words that you should or should not say, the TV shows that you should or shouldn't watch, the music that you should or shouldn't listen to, the games that you should or should not play, but I won't. For one, I simply don't have the time. <laughs> um, but the main reason is that I think Jesus offers us something better. He gives us a positive framework of how we form our hearts and our minds. And if we get the source right, we find our source in Jesus in the way that he is forming us, our mouths will actually start to follow our heart. So Philippians 4.8 tells us this, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. I'd encourage you this week to actually memorize this verse. Uh, it won't take you too long, 
Uh, and as you start to honor God's kindness by filtering what we say, what we think through this framework, uh, as we start to look at his word, trust me, your language will start to follow suit. You will be transformed. That's God's goodness to us. And then he continues on to say, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. This is Paul talking, and he's saying, follow my example. I think it's important that not only we, do we meditate on this word, but we have people in our lives who we admire who do this. Because I will tell you, it's almost instant. The people who I admire, I begin to speak like, I begin to act like, I begin to think like. The only way that we can truly think on these things, though, because this is a big task, is in the power of the Holy Spirit by God himself who dwells within us. And it's through him that Paul finishes that passage by saying, the God of peace will be with you. So left to ourselves, we are unreliable governors of our own life, of our language, of the things that we say, and so were the disciples of Jesus. And yet, he gathers us around his table nonetheless and says, do not worry. I am a reliable leader of your life. The most beautiful thing in history is this. The God of the universe has loved us despite the words that we say, despite the things that we've done, despite our failed attempts at following him. And he invites us to follow him and promises to help guide us day by day. He even shows his love for us today in this book of James that he's given us. This passage reminds us deeply that he, the perfect one who can truly govern language, is the one who dwells within us. So this morning, and I'll invite the music team to, to join me, uh, as we have done for 2,000 years, we dwell on the goodness of our God, on the night he was betrayed, on the night when one of Jesus' closest friends used his words to deliberately harm him, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you, for you who would even betray me in 30 minutes. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup and after supper, and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Every time that we do this together, friends, we remember the invitation to sit, hosted by the Lord of Lords as part of his family. This table represents the most true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable event in history. It is of great moral excellence, and it is worthy of praise. Dwell on this. Enjoy this. Eat and drink this with those around you as we celebrate what God has done. In a moment, we're going to sing about how wonderful it is that Christ is the source of truth and will guide us as we speak and use our language while we sing. So when you're ready, please come up the center aisles to the table. Take the bread and the cup. You can hold on to it and consider it or take it right away. When you've taken what you need, you can return to your seats using the outside aisle. If you truly trust today that Jesus is the only true and trustworthy leader of your life, then this is for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you for this table. May we dwell on the 
the preciousness of who you are. These things in Jesus' name, amen.